I'm Taylor. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. We're off to Italy this week, which is a place we don't think we've been on the main show before. And sticking with our theme of ancient serial killers, we are exploring the story of a woman who reportedly helped over 600 women escape abusive marriages and even has a poison named after her. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, aliens, others, anyone, we give you Julia Tofana. Oh, so uh, slightly unusually for us, we are starting at the end this week. So one night in Rome in 1651, a woman sat down to dinner with her husband, serving him a bowl of soup. Uh, but before he could take a sip, the woman broke down and confessed to her husband that she had laced the soup with poison in an attempt to kill him. One way to ruin your dinner party. Uh, so, as you might expect, the husband was not super happy about his wife's plan to kill him, and he had her arrested. And the wife was then tortured by authorities until she gave up the name of the person who had sold her the colorless, odorless, tasteless poison. That person was none other than Julia Tofana. But there was a problem for law enforcement of the Papal States, which is what that portion of Italy, well, what's now Italy, was called between the 8th and 19th century, because it was under direct rule from the Pope. And this problem was that Julia Tofana was well known throughout Rome and beyond, and she was beloved by many people, from the working classes to the aristocracy, even the church <laughs> loved her. And those people were prepared to protect this famous poisoner. Julia Tofana was warned that her business had been revealed and the authorities uh, were looking for her, and she went on the run hiding in customers' homes before eventually seeking sanctuary in a church. As Julia was sheltered by priests in a Roman church, rumors began to circulate around the city that she had poisoned the entire city's water supply, which is when the mob mentality took over and the church was stormed. Uh, among the mob were actual law enforcement officers who arrested Julia and dragged her away for quote-unquote questioning. Uh, Julia confessed to supplying poison to women first in Sicily and later in Rome so that they could poison their husbands and that her poison had been used to kill 600 men between 1633 and her arrest in 1651. Uh, this meant she would have begun her poisoning career at the age of just 13. Although confessions under dress were not out of the ordinary, uh, there are a few issues with these kinds of confessions. So firstly, any confession obtained uh, under torture or duress is suspicious because it is human nature that most of us will say anything to make the pain stop. And that includes confessing to crimes we haven't committed or, you know, inflating the numbers so that authorities get the answers they want. It happens. Yeah. Most of us would fold under torture. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the relevance and allowance of confessions obtained under duress in court was massively diminished by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't still happen and that courts automatically reject forced or coerced confessions as evidence. 
In the UK, two of the most uh, sort of famous cases of confessions under duress or following torture are the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four, which both took place in 1974. Uh, ten men confessed to paramilitary crimes following police torture, or alleged police torture, we should say, but later recanted their confessions, claiming that they, they had been tortured into confessing. And all ten men had their convictions quashed between 1989 and 1991. This was part of the Troubles in Ireland. Mm. But using this theory, many people argue that the number 600 was coerced from Julia and that it was an inflation of the real number. And it should just say anything to make it stop. Uh, However, people also use the fact that the confession was obtained via torture as a way to argue the exact opposite. Julia confessed to 600 murders over an 18-year period, which is an average of 33.3 murders per year, or 2.7 per month. We know maths. Hate to be the point seven. Uh, if you think about it, if you're a serial killer going out and killing people with your bare hands or like going around stabbing people, that's a lot of people. 33 per year, 2.7 per month. You got to find a really short person for the 0.7. So it's like, it's hard. I think I would count as a 0.7. So yeah. (laughs) But if you think about it like this, all you're doing is selling poison to people or like you're selling someone a product. That's actually not that many sales per month. That's like three sales a month. Yeah. At, you know, like, that's no way to run a business. No. It should be it much be more. should be a very expensive product. Yeah. Uh, so, to this end, some argue that the real number of deaths resulting from poisons Julia sold is much, much higher than 600. And some go so far as to say that she only confessed to 600 as a way to end the pain of torture. Uh, however, the authorities accepted this number that she confessed to, and Julia was sentenced to death. But who was she, and how did she become one of the most prolific poisoners in recorded history? Well, to answer that, we need to go back to 1620. Uh, Julia was born in Palermo in Sicily in 1620. We don't know much about her father, Francis, except that he was an abusive husband and father. And Julia's mother, Tofanio D'Adamo, poisoned him sometime in the late 1620s or early 1630s. Tofanio D'Adamo was an apothecary and a poisoner, and it seems that Julia began learning the craft from her mother. But her mother was executed in 1633 for her father's murder, when Julia was just 13 years old. Although... This is the olden times when you grow up quick. (laughs) Following her mother's death, Julia continued making uh, poisons and other herbal concoctions. She moved from Palermo, first to Naples and later to Rome. We don't know when she moved, but there is some speculation that she may have fled Sicily for the Papal States to avoid detection from law enforcement. Julia was usually described as a beautiful young woman. She was married and widowed young 
but we don't know when she married or when her husband died or even who he was. Uh, <laughs> because uh, even though the legend of Julia Tefano, the prolific poisoner, has survived and even thrived, a lot of the actual real-life details uh, have been lost. So, there's some question marks here. She did have a daughter from this marriage named Gir Girolama Spera. She may have had other children, but if she did, they didn't have the same place in this legend as her daughter, Girolama. Uh, although little is known about Julia's marriage, it is implied in many sources that the marriage was abusive and that uh, her husband was one of Julia's early victims. Uh, now, spousal abuse in the marriage is theorized because Julia's whole raison d'etre was allegedly to help women leave abusive marriages at a time when divorce was not an option. It is a sad fact of life that history just has not valued or recognized women, our agency, or our rights. And that kind of sums up the state of things in the Papal States in the 17th century. According to an article on Medium.com, which we'll link in the show notes, young women would be forced into arranged marriages by their parents. If they refused to marry, they would be cast out onto the streets, forced to beg or become sex workers in order to survive. The marriages were usually loveless, ruled by the husbands, with very little freedom for the wives, and domestic abuse was rife. And if that wasn't bad enough, death during childbirth was incredibly common and women were expected to birth many children. So seemingly there was no escape for women. So having grown up in an abusive household and likely moved into another one when she married, it is understandable that Julia was looking for a way out. Yeah. Following her mother's death, Julia had uh, begun hanging out in apothecaries around Sicily, learning how different chemicals and herbs worked. But her most famous poison, the one which bears her name, uh, is possibly one passed down to her by her mother, who had used it to kill her father. Aquatofana, which literally means tofana water, was a lethal mix of arsenic, lead, and belladonna, although the exact recipe is now unknown. Yeah, because there's lots of other things added in. Yeah. And for legal reasons and ethical reasons, we couldn't read out the recipe, even if it wasn't lost to time because of media ethics in the UK on reporting strange and unusual deaths. In a nutshell, print and digital media uh, ethics, there's a grey area regarding the law. Our patrons know all this from last week's <laughs> Patreon episode, yeah. but for the rest of you... Um, Excessive detail about strange and unusual deaths is prohibited. Um, it's usually enforced more in cases of suicide than homicide. But you're not allowed to report specific details of how someone has taken their own life, if it's strange or unusual, and could potentially inspire someone else to take their own life in this way. And it can be applied to strange and unusual murders as well. So your everyday poisons such as cyanide, arsenic... Even Belladonna are well known, and we can talk about them. But rarer ones, especially those found in nature, you know, your herbs, plants, things these apothecaries would have used, yeah. we can't really discuss in detail. And there's actually no real reason to it. Yeah, <laughs> for us to explain it in detail. But yeah, yeah, because there's a homemade remedy involving arsenic, lead, and Belladonna. 
Yeah. And I'm um, sure all kinds of other fun stuff. Like mm-hmm. how she managed to make it odorless, colorless, tasteless. See, that's the thing. Like, if it was just arsenic lead and belladonna, they are quite easily detectable yeah. now. Yeah. Even back then, they could be detected. Yeah. It's what else she added to, to make, make it, it like colorless, odorless, and tasteless. Yeah. Uh, it's wild. Mm-hmm. Like, she must have been one hell of a chemist. Yeah. So, yeah. The poison was mixed into a colorless, odorless, and tasteless tincture. And to make sure nobody got suspicious about a tincture or a vial of, like, random stuff lying about the house, it was sold under the guise of being a cosmetic product. Uh, the product was sold under the name Mana of St. Nicholas of Bari. Uh, and the bottle had an image of St. Nicholas on the front. Some sources say that sometimes it was sold as a powder or a balm, but most describe it as a face ointment and healing oil. Uh, And manna was known to be a healing ointment or balm. Uh, Julia's beauty and youthful appearance also helped sell the idea that she was dealing in beauty products and, you know, natural home remedies. Uh, It's also likely that she sold traditional herbal remedies and other products usually found in an apothecary to ensure she had a steady income as well as appearing to be a respectable businesswoman uh, because, you know, being an apothecary was one of the few careers open to women at this time. As well as being odorless, tasteless, and colorless, making it easy to slip into food or drink, Aquatavana was a slow-acting poison. And although that meant that domestic abuse victims had to endure two or three more weeks in a dangerous marriage, it also in, uh, also helped ensure that the abuser's death appeared natural and thus believable. Uh, Julia would coach her clients on how to administer the poison, because it only took four to six drops of Aquatavana to kill a person, but they had to be admi- administered in a timely fashion. The first drop would cause exhaustion and physical weakness, mimicking the beginning of like an illness or disease, followed a few days later by a second drop, which would cause stomach pain, sickness and diarrhea. A week later, the third and fourth drops usually caused death, but if not, a fifth and sixth drop a week later definitely would. And the slow-acting nature of this poison led victims to believe that they were dying of a mystery illness, because doctors couldn't figure it out tell them what was wrong with them and they would then get their affairs in order but the weakness and sickness meant that the uh, caused by the poison meant that the spouse was able to exert influence over what affair the affairs looked like as their abusive partner was dying and this was usually to their benefit because although julia is remembered or has become legendary as a woman who helped victims of domestic abuse escape their marriages, she also had plenty of clients who just wanted to kill their rich spouse in order to inherit their estates, rather than escape a bad marriage. I mean, you're always going to have some of those, right? Yeah. Uh, As well as explaining how to administer the poison, Julia would talk her clients through how to behave once their spouse had died. She taught them how to feign devastation and heartbreak and told them to 
demand an autopsy and a coroner's investigation. Because if they were guilty, obviously, they wouldn't do that. And when the undetectable poison wasn't detected, it would all be written off as a tragic death. Like, this is a full-service business. Yeah. And it's it's really smart. Like, yeah. it, it's like using a slow-acting poison is really smart. Mm-hmm. Use it, like, telling people, and this is what happens, like, this is exactly how you do it. Like, it helps ensure that she's not going to get caught. The other thing that's interesting is just knowing that it's not detectable in an autopsy yeah. because you can then you know play you know the victimized grieving widow like my husband died and now you're accusing me yeah and when they find nothing you have indicated yeah, exactly well and like again like she clearly had a massive scientific and medical knowledge to use modern terms mm-hmm. to know that this was not going to show up on an autopsy. Like, yeah. uh, And obviously we are like 400 years ago, so the technology they had in autopsies wasn't yeah. anything like what we have now. But poisons have been around for right, millennia. Yeah. Um, so they did tend to show up. Yeah. And like, and also like, if you think about like 1650s, isn't that like, around like leonardo da vinci time like we're just starting to uh, understand human anatomy really yeah. like if you look at one of my favorite things to do is to look at like anatomy drawings from like the <laughs> middle ages <laughs> because everything is wrong and like things are in the wrong fucking place and things that are supposed to be real small or like take up half the body and so, like, the fact that this young woman in Sicily is just like, oh, yeah, like, I know how to, I know how all this works. Like, that's really mm. fucking cool. So, yeah. Anyway, very smart yeah. uh, business practices here. Uh, Julia may have been happy to help those in abusive marriages, which also included men, not just women. Uh, but she was still very selective about who she helped in order to avoid detection by the authorities. Julia was aided by her daughter and a small number of trusted employees, uh, quite similar to Baba Anoika, whom we covered last December. And we'll we'll put a link to that in the show notes if you want to go listen to that one mm-hmm. um, after listening to this, because they're kind of similar. Uh Uh, Julia's employees would hang around public places in Rome and listen to gossip. If they heard of someone who could benefit from administering Aquatofana to their spouse, they would do a background check. Now, what a 17th century background check looks like, (laughs) we're not sure, but (laughs) that's what they did. Probably just tapped into the local gossip grapevine. They would try to determine if this was a safe person to sell to. And if they decided that they were, they would then tell them to visit Julia uh, for help with their marriage problems. I just love that both this case and uh, Barbara Noikas, they they just had women out listening to local gossip. Uh-huh. 
And that was how their entire, that was basically their entire business plan. Yeah. It's like, eavesdropping like, pays off. Yeah. I love it. And it wasn't just a few female employees who were keeping an ear and eye out for potential clients. Julia also had a Catholic priest on her payroll. Yes, so Father Girolamo would allegedly listen to the confessionals, and if he heard confessions from a victim of domestic abuse, or sometimes a perpetrator, he would pass the name on to Julia and her team. They would do the little 17th century background check, and if they thought the person was sort of a safe client, they would tell Father Girolamo to point them, point this person towards Julia and her team next time they went to confessional. <laughs> Some sources also say that he just directly told them to go. Yeah. But uh, Julia's business continued up until the 1650s when the bowl of poison soup brought it all crashing down around her. Now, some people have theorized that without this, you know, bowl of soup, uh, she could have continued undetected for decades. And uh, Father Girolamo's church is allegedly the same church that she sought shelter at when she was on the run after being named to the authorities. So after the mob stormed the church in 1651 uh, and Julia was arrested, and by the way, she was arrested at the age of just 31. That's incredible. I mean, what have we, we're like a year younger. What have we done with our lives? I haven't killed nearly close to 600 people. 500. No, but maybe. we also don't have a thriving apothecary no. business. And I feel like, I feel like I would be good at that if I was like born in the Middle Ages. I'm starting to think after this episode and after this month's five pound Patreon episode about Lacusta of Gaul, the Imperial Poisoner, like this is the business you need to be in. It it can it can bring you wealth, it can bring you <laughs> status, friends, like job security. I don't know. I think I think we've missed out on a great opportunity here. I'm gonna have to ask like the British royal family if they need an Imperial Poisoner. poisoner. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> That that question alone might get you arrested. <laughs> There's no harm in asking. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we all know what kind of jobs that we need to start go going and seeking out from now on. Um, but yeah, so she was just 31. Uh, and it seems like she was imprisoned until her execution in 1659. Uh but none of the sources that we looked at explicitly said what happened to her in those eight years. So we don't really know. Uh, in July 1659, Julia was executed at Rome's Campo di Fiori, which translates to Field of Flowers. Uh, sounds like a nice place to be executed. Yeah, I think it's just like almost like a city square now that you can just go and visit yeah. uh so she was executed alongside her daughter and three of their employees uh, three other accomplices were bricked up in a dungeon and left to die yikes that that i think's gotta be the worst way to go yeah it's especially if you're with other people because you know whichever one of you goes first is getting eaten well exactly it's just not good it's really not good 
Uh, and a number of her clients were also arrested for buying and administering the poisons. Those from working classes were usually also executed, along with uh, Julia, whereas those who were from middle and upper classes were typically given short prison sentences or some escaped conviction completely by claiming they thought they were purchasing some sort of cosmetic product and that the poisoning of their spouse was a complete accident. But my question yeah. is, if you thought you were buying some sort of face oil, how did it end up in your husband's soup? Yeah. Or even just how did someone end up eating yeah. it or drinking exactly. it? Exactly. Like, does he go around and lick your face every morning? Like, mm. I mean, I'm not married, but maybe you can help us out on this one. Have you ever looked at all your wife's, like, toiletries and thought i'm gonna drink that one today not usually i will say not usually like i do like the way her perfume smells but i have never once wanted to ingest it <laughs> following her execution julia's body was thrown over the wall of the church that had granted her sanctuary which is just fucking evil yeah pretty much that, well it's not evil it's just spiteful it's just rude like, oh, you wanted a here, let's lob this body straight over the wall. Also, it's eight years later. Like, what if that church has a whole new church staff? Like Yeah, I mean, what we don't know what happened to Father Girolamo. Yeah, so Exactly. Is he he may have been executed? Because we don't know the names of the accomplices who were executed mm, and there were yeah. six of well, three were executed and three were bricked up to die, so there's six people whose names we don't know. Yeah. So like So there could have been a whole different staff by then. It's really it's really rude. It's eight years. So like a lot can change. Who knows? Um yeah. So just evil and that's still like a mob mentality kind of thing, isn't it, as well, I think. Yeah. Um so yeah, we presume she was then buried or cremated by the church, but we don't know for sure. We don't know what happened to her daughter's body or any of the other accomplices. Yeah. Uh, there is another version of events which claims that Julia continued selling potions until uh, 1709 or even 1719, which would have made her either 89 or 99 years old, meaning that she would have been poisoning abusive spouses and aspiring widows for over 75 years. Yes. That version does seem to be less common, yeah. though. That's a, that's a lot of years. Yeah. And that is the story of uh, Julia Tafana, poisoner of abusive spouses and aspiring widows. <laughs> like quite, sh quite a short one today. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I like the phrase well, aspiring widow. <laughs> I have seen that phrase a lot in the last few episodes I've researched. <laughs> uh, this and the Patreon one. Um, uh, it's... <laughs> It's, it's something we shouldn't laugh at. No, but also but we do find it funny. It's a great, it's a great turn of phrase. I, I will say that. Mm. But even like, so I have a cape coat which I wore to your wedding, mm -hmm. and it, that cape makes me feel powerful. And I will say I'm channeling rich widow whose third husband mysteriously died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If a man said that, you know. Ch channeling rich widower whose third wife just died 
we'd all be fucking outraged. Yeah, I mean... But, but the other way around, we all find it very acceptable to joke about. Like, yes, but also... How many other ways that men kill women are we also finding acceptable? So... Yeah. It's a... It's kind of a a balanced scale there. Um, there is also a legend oh. uh, that connects uh, Julia Tafana to Mozart. Ooh. So when Mozart was dying, he allegedly uh, claimed that someone had poisoned him with Aquatafana. Mm-hmm. But there's no sources from the time that like substantiate that, and it seems to have been... Um, a legend or myth that kind of sprung up in the years following his death. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he uh, he did at one point believe that, or allegedly believe that he had been poisoned with Aquatafana, but that wasn't what killed him in the end. So, when did he? It's a lot of years. It's like long after she died. Okay. Oh yeah, seventeen ninety one. Her... Yeah, so her daughter was also executed at the same time so if she was only 31 Mm -hmm. like her daughter must have only been like in her mid to late teens yeah assuming that so julia's parents died or her mother was executed when she was 13 she would have married and had her daughter very early shortly after um poisoned her husband and then obviously because she was always she's always referred to as this very beautiful young widow yeah so, but yeah, so the, the the daughter was was also executed, so there's no family line to carry on this poison that's been passed down. Yeah. Unless, so, I guess, there was... Uh, accomplices yeah, who escaped. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you know, apprentices who mm. carried it on. So, yeah. I think my sort of main question from this is the same as when we did Barbara and Oika, which is, would we have the same reaction if this was a male poisoner helping men kill their wives? Because when I hear female poisoner helping women escape domestic abuse, I'm like, she is doing... It's not even God's work. She's doing the work that God should be doing <laughs> if God was real and actually cared. Yeah, like, it is... It, there's a bit of, like, a... I don't even know the... Like, a revenge thing that's very hmm. attractive. And I think also there's something about like a little old lady or a, you know, a beautiful young woman mixing potions and selling them to, you know, down on their luck citizens that's very like attractive as a story there's a bit of like Mm. the occult sorcery like you know magic and as as well as like sort of a lot of these tropes that we come across and Mm. like it's not quite the same unless you think of it as like a oh a wizard and he gave people you know magic potions to whatever but you don't really hear Mm. that as much no so it is it's interesting like but then again 
from so from what I've read and from my understanding, um, so apothecaries and chemists tended to be women anyway. Yeah, in this in this time period at least, it was sort of an acceptable career for a woman. Yeah, men seem men had different careers. It doesn't seem to be as many, or at least it's not as well known. There's not as many stories about male apothecaries in this sort of time period. I think it's also something to point out that, like, there's not as many stories or cases of male poisoners. No. Um, It it does tend to be uh, the method that women use. Yeah. Like, uh, and I think, you know, I haven't... Haven't done all the research, but as far as I'm aware, it's a it's sort of a a, a difference in psychology kind of thing, and probably mm-hmm. also like societal conditioning and all that kind of stuff. Even physical yeah, strength, physical strength in yeah. some cases. Yeah. Um. I mean, I know they say that adrenaline and hum- like adrenaline can make you do pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. I actually read recently that. The human body is stronger than any of us really understand, and it's just that our brain stops us from using our full strength because our full strength would like snap all our bones in half really easily. Yeah. Like if you ran or lifted weights or something using your entire strength, you would just snap. Destroy yourself, yeah. Yeah, like your bone, because your muscles are actually so strong, they just snap. Yeah. But there's something in your brain that stops you doing that, apparently. Yeah, which then makes sense when you come across these like massive feats of strength fueled by adrenaline Mm. like you know someone lifting a car off of someone or yeah um but if you are trying to commit murder you are not necessarily going to have well a normal person maybe would have that kind of adrenaline but not not a premeditated murderer probably (laughs) No, if it if you're a cold-blooded killer, you maybe wouldn't. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Like, uh, would we have the same reaction if it was a male poisoner? No, probably not. Would it have ever really been a male serial poisoner? Probably, probably not. not. Also because for men, especially in past time periods, it's kind of acceptable to kill your adversaries. Yeah, violence was a lot more like, accepted and common and even expected in some yeah. circles. Like, think about dueling. It's like, oh, that guy insulted yeah. my brother. I'm going to shoot him or stab him at, you know, dawn. Like, <laughs> so it could just be that they they all had other ways of, of doing away with people. Mm. I did have a thought, because I was like, Reading various sources and all, like, Julia Trefana is sort of remembered as this legend of this, this woman who helped all these these women in abusive marriages mm-hmm. escape. The likelihood is that also a large portion of her client base was people who just wanted to off their husbands or wives because they wanted the money. Yeah. And I was kind of thinking, like, with poisoners, like, obviously there's some people who just poison, who go out and try and poison a lot of people like uh, like the Tylenol murders mm-hmm. things like that but also is she technically a murderer 
because she didn't administer the poison. Which I think is a very lovely ethical question to break everyone's brains. Yeah, see, I was just thinking about that as well. Like, technically, she's just a vendor. She's a she's a merchant, yeah. you know? Mm. If... I think what complicates that in her case is the fact that she taught them how to use it. Like, yeah. if it was a, here's a thing do your own research and figure it out, then yeah. that might be a bit more of a gray area. But she's like, listen, so on week one, you give them two drops. They're going to get really sick. Week two, they're going to get more sick. And now you can start messing around with their will. And week four, <laughs> them suckers will be dead. And then you have to act real repentant. Like, that's a little more damning. <laughs> mm. But I think in some other cases... You could very well argue, it's like, well, I was just selling them a cosmetic product. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't know that this could be used as a poison. One of my customers just figured it out. Yeah. Or if you go back to like the Madeline Smith case, which was like episode 10 yep. last year. Um, so she was buying... Is it arsenic or cyanide under the guise of Rats. it being rat poison? Yeah. So yeah, you had to sign the poison book and everything. But, you know, in that case, the vendor would be like, well, I just sold her and she said it was for rat poison. Yeah. And like, eventually, yes, they did become kind of suspicious of it. Like, why? Why do you need? You must have some really big fucking rats there. How, how many rats does, does Glasgow really have? Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, well, and also you think about that. So that's like 200 years later. And by that point, they were selling, I think it was arsenic that uh, mm. she was buying. They were selling it to her mixed with ash so that it would, like, you couldn't just slip it into a... Oh, yeah, I'd forgotten yeah. that, actually, yeah. So, like, she had to mm. put it in a hot chocolate... <laughs> in order to disguise yes. it so yeah i mean that alone shows you that like yes while you could buy poison and stuff and there was you know other uses besides murder for some of these things mm. that like mixing it with ash regulating it via you know recorded purchases and stuff there were there were improvements to the whole poison mm. industry, but uh, since 1650, it's like it's, it's the middle of Renaissance Italy, which is really interesting mm. to me. Yeah. And like you're talking about a period of enlightenment, of cultural change, and, and you know, probably a lot of people in these traditional marriages that were unhappy, abusive, whatever, being like, oh. I don't have to put up with this. I don't have this. to put up with this. I, I don't want to do the same thing that everyone else has done for centuries. Like, I want to go learn things. I want to go make things, do things, go places, whatever. So, yeah, it's interesting to think about it in within the historical context as well. Yeah, at that, it's, I have no problem with knocking off abusers, rapists, pedophiles, 
if you fall into one of those three categories, I have no problem someone poisoning you. But that's just my personal morals. <laughs> but yeah, I just I just think it's very interesting because she's remembered as same as Barbara Noika, same as Lacusta, them well less Lacusta, which you'll know if you're if you're a patron. Um but they were selling poisons. Yes, they were telling people how they worked. They weren't the actual poisoners, and I just think it's interesting ethical debate. It is, yeah. Because I like to be an ass about these things. Yeah. Well, and it's so. kind of like, I mean, you can kind of apply that to a few different industries. Like, if you think about military. like I was going to say... um gun control yeah because this almost using that argument almost sort of can be twisted around to well guns don't kill people people kill people well yeah like actually there's there have been some instances where people like gun shop owners or gun sellers have been sued or potentially criminally prosecuted i think there's like one or two cases out of Mm. you know the millions of gun deaths um that where like the person selling the gun has been held accountable for someone's murder in in oh. addition to the actual killer but like in, on a lesser charge of like manslaughter or you know aiding and abetting because they didn't do the proper background checks or they sold it illegally or something so well, that's interesting yeah. i didn't but it's not I didn't know it's that. It's not common, for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, it is kind of the same idea. But, like, yeah, if you teach someone how to use a knife or how to use a gun, is that... And then, you know, for, for their job, say they're, like, a forest warden or something, mm. and they use it for safety. But then they use those skills to go and kill someone. Hmm. You could say the same for pest control workers. Yeah, absolutely. So, lovely big grey moral area for you all to ponder. Yeah, and I think we should leave it at that because I feel like now we're just trying to fill time. <laughs> yeah, we have kind of gone off track. Gonna be a bit. short. <laughs> um, but no, it isn't. I I do like these. I actually think that we should look at more cases from, like, mainland Europe. Yes. Because these Italian ones, these last two that we've done are really interesting. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and, like, what else have we done from mainland Europe? Obviously, Elizabeth Bathory. Yeah. Barbara Noika. Um... Even Chiquitilla. I was going to say, I think we've done more like Eastern European stuff. We need to find some like French murders. Actually, yes, there's going to be a French one for our 10 pound and up patrons this month. Now that I think about it. Yeah, so... Yeah, if you do have any, like, European cases that you want us to cover. Yeah. Because these tell us, like, it might take us longer to do the research, so they might get bumped down a few weeks. <laughs> yeah. Because 
sometimes the language and translation and stuff can make it a bit difficult. Yeah, and that's the thing, like, they need to have enough sources in English or translatable to English that we can actually figure out what it's all about. But... Oh, Norwegian spies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But most of those sources just translated very easily using, like, Google, so... Um, But yeah, definitely something we should look into more. I feel like Italy is just, like, chock full of good like mm. murders rome you know you know in rome there's all kinds of shit going on so yes send us your suggestions for any sort of european cases yeah um and uh if you like the show do be sure to rate and review us on your podcast app especially if you're listening on apple podcasts uh, you know go scroll down tap those stars right up a little couple words if 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 and you feel like it um and subscribe to us so you never miss a new episode and if you do want to get some square mile merchandise we have a selection of products for you uh so you can do just that and you can find them at squaremileofmurder.store uh the link to which will be in the show notes and you can find it on our website as well If you'd like to help us cover the costs of making the podcast and help us invest in the future of the show, you can join our Patreon. Tiers start at just £1 per month. Every patron gets regular episodes a day early, a shout-out on the show, priority case requests, and a lifetime discount on merch. And that's just for £1 a month. As the tiers go up, you get more, including bonus episodes and exclusive stationary merch that you cannot buy anywhere. So check that out at patreon.com forward slash square mile of murder. Links are in all the usual places. And uh, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back on Friday for patrons with our monthly ramble yep. where we will actually talk about true crime this month and not our holidays like last month. In theory, we'll see. I have things to talk about this month. Oh, uh, I had and <laughs> I had something to talk about last month, but we never got there. And now I've forgotten it. <laughs> I remember. And for everyone else, we will be back next week with episode 80. Yeah. And you know what that means? We're going back to Scotland. So we'll see you then. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.